Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU CEO Janet Troutwine sits down for a discussion with Managing Director of Business Consulting at the Alera Group, Perry Braun. This is the fourth annual conversation between the two, and today they will discuss health insurance industry trends of the last year, as well as potential trends to watch in 2022, including challenges that employers, employees, and families are facing as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to impact the industry at large. Well, hello, Perry. So nice to be talking with you again on our podcast. I always enjoy these podcasts. I guess I want to talk to you, first of all, about just something that's so obvious, but this issue of the pandemic itself and, you know, the changes that it's gone through and the issue of the state reaction versus the federal reaction and where the two are seem to be butting heads lately. Any thoughts about that? Well, thank you. And it's always great to be back spending time with you. And, and I, I love these sessions. I love these sessions with you. Because you're, you're on the inside. I'm a, little, I'm a little bit on the outside in Washington. And it's always great to sort of catch up on that. So it's a great question about the pandemic. And I think what we're seeing out is we're seeing what's being played out is this federalism versus state rights and authority. And I am excited for advisors and consultants who are trying to advise their clients on how to manage through this. And we have states that feel very, very strongly to exert their rights, as you know over what the policy should be and how we should be reacting to it. And the federal government feels that it has an obligation from a public health policy standpoint to step in as well. To be honest, I think the results are mixed, depending upon, you can pick whatever data you want to prove your case. But I think if we're going to be honest, I think the results are mixed. And right now, the collateral damage, in my opinion, is employers don't know exactly what to do. People don't know exactly what to do. Advisors don't know how to advise. And I would love to see if we could get a little bit more clarity and a lot more sanity in the conversation to give people better confidence in what to prepare for in the future. And I think that's where people are right now, just sort of nervous about the future and they don't quite know what to do next. I wish I could say that I thought that clarity was going to come sometime soon, but I actually don't. The fact is, is that, you know, labor law is a mixed bag. There are some parts of it that are that come you know, from the federal side and some that come from the state side. And it's a very politically charged environment right now. And I don't think that either side wants to give up any turf on it. It would be better if they did. I I agree with you. I'd love to go back to the old days when it was, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, and they would sit in a room and just try to figure it out in a compromised approach. But you're absolutely right. It, It seems to be winner take all sort of mindset. And the, some states are more aggressive at pushing back at the feds. And that isn't just Republican versus Democrat. This is Democrat sometimes on Democrat. Uh-huh. Is, right? And there are other states who are quietly just sort of moving through the process and doing their own thing uh, under the radar, under the news. 
I wish we would get to some point of compromise with an actionable plan going forward so we could all plan better for this. Well, speaking of the planning side, you know, my thought is, is that a lot of our members and the, the people that, that you work with at Alera, as well as people around the country, you know, they're not, they don't know what to tell their clients. Their clients are asking them, what do we do about this? What's the answer? They want to do the right thing. And it's, it's hard. We have some people who specialize in compensation, but most of them, that's not their first thing. And I, I think it's really difficult to be tempted to provide an answer where one does not exist. And to say, this is the answer. My only thought, if if I was really uh, pushed to the wall on it, I, I guess the only thing you can say is, you know, you comply to the highest standard. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make sure you're not in trouble, you do the, the most of the requirement. And, and that's difficult because a lot of these employers are also in the middle of this whole political battle. And they feel a lot of them very much the same way that some of the other politicians do. Not all of them, but we see that a lot. So um, I don't know. I guess if they were my clients, I would say just do the most difficult thing, but that can be really expensive. And that can use a lot of dollars that otherwise might be better served to provide other benefits for employees. You're absolutely right. And and remember the days we used to advise clients to be, you know, follow the reasonable person rule. Do what a reasonable person would do, right? It seems as if they don't know where to invest their money now. There's so many unknowns in the future. And you talked about compensation. You know, we we find that the dollars that are being allocated to the business are starting to go towards retention of employees. Bonuses to stay, please, right? It is retrofitting businesses with filtration systems and other things to raise the level of security and confidence. If somebody were to come back to work from a remote environment, that they're going to be healthy because the employer has put in the appropriate safeguards, again, sort of reasonable person rule. But I think what's telling and what continues to be more telling is how employees, for the most part, feel that they now have greater opportunity to demand the type of working conditions, the type of hours, the type of locations where they want to work. And the the cliche is, is this the new normal? Are we now sort of in the new normal now? where remote environments, Zoom calls, uh, are they going to be the future of interaction? And how do we train? How do we coach? How do we mentor in an environment when we don't have personal contact as much as we used to? And how do we, how do we now cater or customize our work environments to an individual level? Because some will want to come back to work because they feel they thrive better in that environment. Others are like, no. This is where I thrive. So how do you strike the right balance in your labor relations approach, in your compensation approach, in your business policies to accommodate everybody's individual interests? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that even as our NAHU employees have come back to work. You know, back before all of this started, we had, you know, a handful of remote workers. And then we had a pretty tough policy about who was allowed to work remotely. There were sometimes we thought there are some people that, you're a great employee and you are not suited to work remotely. We want you in the office or we need you in the office. You know, now we're finding as people are coming back, some of those people that we otherwise might not have thought would be at home want to be there. Yeah. And it worked because we all made it work during the height of the pandemic. But it, it's really tough. And we are finding trouble hiring people because people don't necessarily 
want to come to work or they have requests related to that that people would never have asked for in the past. And I think all of the clients of our members are really struggling with this issue of the workforce. And, you know, I find it, frankly, shocking and surprising. I thought I figured that when people's benefits started running out, that they would be all ready to come back to work. And so, you know, I think, what are they doing for money? You know, how are they managing? And I assume that you're hearing the same thing back from the people at Alera that you work with and that you're probably experiencing it yourself. You're absolutely right. And I would like to say I've been at this much longer than you. You look so good and so healthy and I'm uh, graying all over the place. And I can tell you, this is the very first time in 35 years where I've seen public health policy and politics intersect themselves in a place where our benefit and medical underwriting and health underwriting conversations really take a backseat where I would have thought that we would have a more forward seat at the table at how we can help structure benefits and design risk management strategies and pricing strategies to accommodate the risk. It really seems like we're incongruent in these conversations. But to your point, yeah, I think employers are at a place right now where there's so many business factors that they're having to deal to daily, weekly, monthly, that are problematic beyond having a conversation about budgets and and costs related to benefits. It's labor participation. It's rising labor costs. It's the difficulties, depending upon the industry, to find any kind of talent that will come to work. There are people that have left metropolitan areas for more urban or rural areas to work in a remote environment who I don't think are going to come back. So they're making a New York wage, but living in Nashville, Tennessee, because it's a more favorable tax place and it's a higher quality of living. Are these businesses going to adjust their labor costs to pay at a Nashville rate for a New York job? I think there are some longer term conversations that this country and companies are going to have with respect to the treatment of compensation, the treatment of recruiting, the treatment of working with employees that are yet to come. Once we sort of get through this third wave, and is there going to be a fourth wave? I don't know. Is there going to be a fifth wave? I don't know. But everybody on the science side seems to think that this is going to start to alleviate and get better as we approach March. But it's like the stock market. We can guess it, but we can't really time it. And we haven't gotten these timelines right yet. But I am hopeful. I am hopeful that sometime soon, we're going to be shifting our conversation away from this pandemic and COVID onto other things that are a lot more substantive as well to employers and their needs for what they have to focus on as well with their business. And, and supply chain is sort of another problematic place, right? I don't know what, but where you are in D.C., but when I travel to Pittsburgh or Cleveland, Ohio or Chicago, Illinois, and I go grocery shopping, I have still a lot of struggle with shelves that are still rather thin, right, right. rather thin, right? So there's lots of issues that uh, businesses and people are, are having to deal with on an individual basis that I think take priority right now. A lot of them are um, expensive for employers to deal with, really eat into the cost of what they can allocate for benefits or even the types. And then based on this changing workforce, the type of benefits they need might be different or right. they might not have had to worry about the national scope of um, how far their health plan would reach. For example, let's say they had a, you know, a closed service area HMO or something like that. 
that doesn't work if you've got half of your workforce anywhere at all that could be working that way. It's a great, it's a great point. And you've had a great finger on the pulse of a lot of these issues that employers and politicians are having to, to sync up to, to solve. As you look out over the next, look back one year, but look out over the next two to three, what do you think the top one or two priorities are that you see where politicians and business people have an alignment of prioritization, in your opinion? I just think this issue of our changing workforce is not over yet. Yeah. I think we're going to see more changes that we haven't even contemplated yet. And I think we're going to have to, to change how we respond to them, how we provide meaningful benefits to those people, how we keep them engaged. I think these are going to be difficult because, look, you know, we're the United States of America. We are a productive economy here. We, you know, the sense of the United States is that, you know, if only you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. And and this work hard enough thing is is pretty critical. And it seems that I don't want to even imply that people have gotten lazy, but part of me feels a little bit like that, you know, that perhaps it's some have, or they've just decided that they want to modify their lifestyle to take a different direction. You know, I will say that I think it's going to open up new issues as we deal with more people working remotely. Yeah. I think mental health issues will explode due not only to people feeling isolated, but also just all the things that go with not having the mental stimulation. Mm-hmm. And we all like to think that we can have all the mental stimulation we want through Zoom calls, but it isn't quite the same of being in an office where you're talking with people. So that, and we, we are already having issues with healthcare workforce. I think healthcare workforce is critical, particularly in the mental health area, but in other areas as well. And it needs to adapt to you know the changing world. Yeah, and then transparency, I think, will be a huge issue. And I would also add to that that w- while we're talking about short-term, short-term sort of deliverables or challenges, I think mid to long-term is this remote learning for children in school. Mm-hmm. How are we preparing them with the skills to enter a workforce six, seven, eight years from now and compete for the right jobs that they're prepared and trained for? So I'm very, very concerned about the labor markets five, six, seven years from now with the children that have been learning remotely for the past two. Are they prepared and set up to be successful in the future? And it has something to do with our workforce issue. So I just want to kind of make a comment here on that. This issue with the kids and the remote learning versus the in-person and especially the back and forth absolutely affects our workforce. When parents have no idea on any given week, will school be on, will school be off? Can I come in? Can I not come in? And lack of consistency is really uh, difficult. I was talking with my son earlier today who said that his children had just gone back to school after they'd, they'd started off the year remotely, and then they'd just gone back to school this past Monday, and we're recording this on a Wednesday, and he gets a note home from the teacher today that says that one of them has been exposed to somebody with COVID, so they have to quarantine for a week. Yeah. And it's the cycle of this over and over and over again. So even when school's on, school may not be on for you if somebody got it and you're, you have to quarantine now. You're absolutely right. And and again, this is where I think there's a missed opportunity to build political compromise around helping with some type of financial assistance and support that would help parents navigate through these waters and have some level 
some level of confidence rather than, you know, waking up in the morning at six and figuring out that their day is now imploded and they got to figure out what to do. And my children are not small anymore. But for people like you and I, Perry, who are traveling and on the road all the time, who have that kind of job, yeah, not all of them have children that are, have, are kind of grown up. Right. Some of them still have young children. And what do they do? Correct. So it's just a, it's a really difficult thing to contemplate. And then you wonder back to the kids, well, how will this impact years down the road, this back and forth learning, how will it affect their ability to be productive adults? Will it make them more adaptable? Maybe. But will they have learned what they need to learn in the meantime in order to be the kind of employees that will be good employees in the future? Yeah, and, and my experience has taught me in observations that people want to feel secure. They want to know what's in front, of them. even if it's bad news, at least that they know it, they can react and adjust to it. But the fact that we've gone two years with a ground that is at best, at best shaky, if not weak in its foundation. And I think generally speaking, this country is in a place from a labor workforce standpoint of saying, I just don't know. I just, I can't plan. I can't predict. I can't. So they don't feel secure. So I think to your point, I think people have exited the workplace and I think they're doing what they can to sort of move through the day, through the week, through the month until there's some sense of stability and some sense of security. Then I, I think they'll, they'll re-enter the workforce when they feel that it's the right time to re-enter the workforce. We're ready for the ones that are on our to hire list to be around soon. I want to just shift gears for a minute. The last thing I'd really like to talk about today is the issue, and it's another workforce issue, but a critically important one. It has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have a committee at NAHU that's really dedicated to that. We've done a lot of great work this year through our committee, but this is an issue that we're all facing, not as much the diversity part. I mean, it's, it's easy enough to, to be diverse in your hiring, but that doesn't really address the inclusion part of it and how you ensure that your policies, once you've hired, are, are in, inclusive and uh, equitable among all, all various types of people that you might hire. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. And again, I think this is an issue that is generationally important to those that are in the first 10 years or earlier. 10 years or earlier in their career, because they have a much different social conscience. I think words matter. And I love to start with the word inclusion and then add the word diversity after that. So I think regardless of what your goals are, I think inclusion is the primary goal that we should strive for. And we should always strive, I think, to have a workforce that resembles the community that we are in. So I see a lot in our industry, as I'm sure you do too, that we need to change. We need to change the fabric of look that's in our industry, specifically in agencies and in insurance companies and insurance carriers, and bring forth a more diverse thinking. And to me, all points of view count. It could be generational points of view. It could be sexual orientation points of view. It, it all matters. It, it's all important. And I think that group think model for businesses that approach it in that way I think are stronger business models and have a much longer sustainability than those that are so narrow-minded or so narrow-focused, or they only hire people that believe in the things that they believe in. I think that monochromatic sort of thinking won't survive and play long-term. 
With that said, then, I think your workforce policies, I think your benefits, I think the support you provide employees should match what it is you're trying to create. So if you're if you are serious about a diverse workforce, then think about in the design and construction of your workforce policies and your benefits about those things that are important to that specific ethnic group or sexual oriented person. What's important to them and design your policies around meeting that need as opposed to just designing the policies for the sake of designing policies. Get input. Find experts out there or people out there that are passionate about the issue and engage them. Engage with them on what this is. Because I think this is, again, a generational and it's a it's an important issue for these socially conscious younger people that are coming up. Well, I'm hoping that the people listening are having conversations about inclusion and diversity with their clients. I'm sure that they are. They certainly affect decisions that you make about everything you offer, and the way you present them to people, and a number of different other things. So I hope that people are having those conversations. Do you feel like they are? I do. And I think like all things, it's a slow change. It's a slow evolution, just as I think more and more businesses are becoming more socially and environmentally focused as well. And I do believe that more clients in the future are going to start looking to do business with people that align to them culturally as well. Uh Do do they share my mission or are they supportive of my mission? And so I, I think when evaluating who you're going to use as your advisor, broker, consultant, whatever the right term is, I think more and more the screening criteria is going to be balanced around your mission as an advisor or consultant. What's your social mission? What's your community mission? What's your thinking about that? It doesn't have to be perfectly aligned, but I think what they want to see as employers is that you have a mission. You have a social consciousness. You have a social statement that you're making. And I think they're going to be looking for some of that in the future. Because again, I think that's what's attracting a lot of the workforce in the next 10 to 15 years is not just who I work for, but what do they stand for? What do they believe in? And I want to align to that because it it aligns to my beliefs as well. Look, people have had a lot of time to think about things like that. Yeah. And and they have more opportunities and more places to select from. So I think employers can stand out in the way they present that aspect of their workplace to prospective employees and customers in their communities as well. I agree. I completely agree. And again, this one of the great things about this country is it's giving. It is it's truly a very charitable population, a very charitable country. I just feel that it's going to become more and more intentional, more directed, as opposed to just giving. There'll be a purpose behind that. Well, we hope that will be the case. Perry, thank you so much for coming today. I always enjoy talking with you. I hope to see you in person soon. And I know that everyone listening has enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you very much. And all the best to you and to the NAHU leadership and group. And thank you for your contributions to what you're trying to do for us as our advocate and our representative. I encourage everybody to participate and join. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. Janet, who are we toasting to this week? Well, I would like to just toast to Perry Braun for coming on and also to the Alera Group for being such a great partner with us. And we look forward to a long and continued relationship. Cheers. Thank you 
for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.